Welcome to The Nest Show, the podcast that brings you insights into the crypto market, trading and investment experiences, and what we're looking forward to as we navigate the space together. Before we get started with the show, I want to thank our friends and sponsors over at PrimeXPT, where many of our listeners have already signed up to trade by visiting the burbnest.com slash PrimeXPT. Now, we're excited to reward you with a very special offer brought to you by our friends at Prime. Visit the announcement channel on our Discord to learn how you can receive a one-time trading bonus equal to 50% of your deposit amount. Exciting times indeed. PrimeXPT is the most powerful trading platform offering immediate access to over 30 assets. Users may trade cryptocurrencies, forex, commodities, stock indices, and much more, all from a single Bitcoin-settled account. PrimeXPT gives experienced traders up to 100x leverage to multiply their capital while also providing users with multiple order types, low trading fees, and ultra-high liquidity to equip them with a one-of-a-kind trading experience. Registration does not require any user information. So visit the link below and start trading on Prime XPT in minutes. You'll be hearing much more about Prime XPT here and why we're so excited about the products they already offer, including a one-of-a-kind BTC and Ethereum options trading platform called Turbo and an upcoming co-vesting product that will give traders and investors alike an entirely unique opportunity to multiply their capital. We're excited to congratulate the Prime XPT team on a couple of project milestones starting with the launch of direct crypto purchases with the use of credit and debit cards. To learn more about how to purchase crypto on the PrimeXBT platform using debit or credit cards, visit PrimeXBT today for a complete walkthrough. Also, we want to regard Prime for their progress integrating TradingView chart technology into their charting platform and their continued progress with the co-vesting module that will allow traders to mirror the activity of other traders. To find out more about the extensive progress of the co-vesting build-out, visit the PrimeXPT blog for the most up-to-date information. And now for the show. What the Nest Show is. This is a podcast brought to you by the Burb Nest community, an independent crypto and forex-centered trading community built to sharpen each other in capturing opportunities in the markets while protecting capital along the way. What this is not, trading advice. We are not financial advisors, and you should not regard any information here or in the Nest Club as financial advice. You should always consult a licensed financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Hi guys, it's CryptoBurp here and welcome to today's episode of The Nest Show. And today we are having a truly amazing and special guest, uh, known by the perfect name of Scald Merker. How's it going, Scott? Good, man. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, it's funny, uh, funny always that we end up uh, across screens from each other, but I think yeah. probably most people don't know that we've actually met in person. So <laughs> it's good to catch up. Oh yeah, I agree. Long time, no see, you know. Uh, Last time we've seen each other, it was in Vegas, right? It was in Vegas yeah. last year. It was an amazing conference of work crypto conference again in, in Las Vegas. Um, you were, you know, just being there on the stage, throwing these amazing, amazing materials for to the public, to the you know audience uh, about the markets. And I gotta tell you, man, you are so talented. You are Thank so you. charismatic. You're having so much charisma that people love talking to you. People love just seeing you talk. And, I hope uh, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, that, that, that's what I can tell you. I was just sitting yeah, there. I appreciate right? that. I yeah. and, uh, and all of your experience that you're having with you, uh, I think it just simply corresponds with how amazing and brilliant person you are today. And, you know, how about we give it a 
quick and brief start with your history because your history is like one of the richest I know, right? It's one of the most interesting uh, histories from all the, let's say, CT crypto Twitter people. Uh, you're, you know, kindly sharing it with people with, on, your, on your Twitter profile you know, every day, you know, bait from your music and being for trading. So how about we give it a go and hear how it all started for you to be in a place that you are here today? Sure, sure. Um, so, and thank you for the kind words. I really do appreciate that. So, you know, I was like a, a kid in a small town in Florida. I did not grow up like in a big city. There was not very much culture. It was the deep South. It was just like, but you know, my parents were from New York and Miami. So like, you know, immigrant families grew up in big cities. So we always had sort of that culture and my parents were both well-educated and they really believed in uh, teaching us financial literacy, which I think was not like a major priority with most people, certainly in the eighties. Uh, even now, you know, schools barely teach financial literacy. So they got me very early into caring about stocks. Like when I was young, I would buy, you know, a share of Apple or Disney or something for a few dollars. And it got me very interested in markets. You know, fast forward to college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. And, you know, I, I was not a graduate of the Wharton School, but it was the you know number one business school, um, basically in the world uh, at the time. And so I was able to take classes in the Wharton School and all of my friends were like headed straight to Wall Street, you know. So when I was graduating uh, college, I had a job offer to go to work at Solomon Smith Barney, like to do uh, investment banking. And I said no, because I didn't want to work 100 hours a week. And I decided that I was going to pursue DJing <laughs> and music. There was a lot of other things sort of that happened along that path. But I really was very passionate about uh, doing music. So I also, at that time, I started a small magazine in Philadelphia. And that's how I actually survived, was kind of running that business while I was DJing. Sold it to a company in New York. There was a bigger magazine and I went to run their magazine for a year or two. Uh, and then from there on, I completely quit and just went into music. And like I always talk about, like I had this Ivy League degree, but I was literally delivering packages in the freezing cold in New York City, like for an advertising agency for 500 bucks a week to like be able to try to do music. And everyone thought I was nuts because all my friends were like investment bankers and hedge fund guys and stuff. And I was literally like, just the guy showing up in the mailroom, uh, you know, delivering packages. And, you know, I kind of got a break in music eventually after many, many, many years of struggling through it. And, you know, it was an amazing career for a long time. I never lost that love for um, markets, you know, and for trading. I did it very poorly, to be honest. Like, uh, I was a gambler, you know, FOMO, gambler, all the things that you read about, which is why I talk about it so much now because. Like I'm in my 40s. I've learned every lesson that everybody who's trading for the first time has learned. And I learned it the hard way and had nobody there, no YouTube videos, no mentors at the time to teach me what I was doing wrong, you know. And like I remember that pain and like those horrible feelings that like all I had to do was nothing and I would have money, you know. Like I was literally just throwing money away. I didn't have much of it and it was just terrible. And I, I hope now. That I can help a few people like uh, avoid that happening because it really is it's just truly terrible you know my my life has been very blessed i I never was worried that I would be homeless or anything like that, but like I had very hard times where I was really broke, and you just when you experience that, you never want to feel it again, you know so my music career got me out of debt, it got me to a certain level, and then once I um had kids, it was time to 
pack that up and do something else. And since I had this passion for trading and markets and crypto was kind of the thing at the time, it just was an easy transition for me into that. And then, you know, this just sort of like snowballed and went, you know, kind of out of control. People started following me. It just became, it was never my intention. You know, I didn't even know what crypto Twitter was. I was just like a guy. I was trying to find trades like everyone else, you know, <laughs> I was following people like you, you know? So, um, and, uh, and so here we are, you know, um, I absolutely love it. It's amazing. Like trading is still so much fun and, you know, it's allowed me to, you know, I always like loved making music and producing content. And so like being able to do a newsletter and a podcast just like this and have conversations to me, it's just sort of a natural extension of, what I already enjoyed before, just in a totally different arena. So, you know, it's like you always, I'm sure you get it too. It's like, well, if you're such a great trader, why do you have to have a podcast? Why do you have to newsletter? Well, I, I don't, I want to, it's fun. <laughs> I, I love doing exactly. it, you know? So, and so here we are, you know, that's really how I, how I ended up here. A lot of twists and turns along the way, a lot of like small businesses I ran or consulted for or completely failed at, but you know, music was the core for about almost 20 years. Well, that's that's quite a chunk, man. That's that's. I think you know your story can truly inspire a lot of people. You know, uh, you again because of your charisma, because of your actual you know very kind type of personality, by just kind of like having you know this natural feeling to help deliver the help to the others, because you don't want them to actually you know go through what you did, right? But you know in the past, uh, to an extent at least. Um, I think, you know, this pretty much enabled to gather a lot of interesting people around you, right? Uh, I believe that, you know, any, any person that you meet, you know, in the street is kind of like not an, it's not an accident, right? You're, you're not just meeting them accidentally, yeah. right? So whenever, let's say, I don't know, you, you are super talented, you know, let's say for, for your DJing, right? So there you go, you know, you make it, you do a gig, right? On the gig, you meet up. Just, well, some people would call accidentally, but you go right. in a place to meet, you know, just such amazing and famous people, you know, that you actually did, like, throw in a couple of names of, of the guys that you actually met. I mean, I've, I, along the way, I've met, you know, I've done stuff with Kanye and, I mean, people from like Boom. Crosby, Stills and Nash <laughs> and, and Sheryl Crow all the way to like, you know, Jeez. Kanye and... Public Enemy and uh, Justin Timberlake and, you know, Rihanna. You did with Justin people. Timberlake. I never played with him. You're just asking people I meet. So I was in Japan on tour in 2006. Uh, I was the DJ in a band for a Japanese artist. He was like the Michael Jackson of Japan. So we were on this huge tour. And that was kind of my big break, even though I was just a guy in the band, you know. And so one of the backup singers in my uh, band, a woman, a woman named Felicia Graham, her best friend was one of Justin Timberlake's backup singers. So like, you know, there's this like backup singing circuit, like where they all rotate and you, you know, you go yeah. from person to person. And so they, Justin was in Japan for his first solo tour ever in Japan. I think he'd been there with NSYNC before. And so like one night, my friends like we were going to a karaoke bar with a bunch of Justin Timberlake's like band. So we went to a karaoke bar in Japan and it's like a private room and Justin, he was there. You know what I mean? And so like, oh. we're hanging out. I literally like I was singing Al Green and he was like the backup vocals. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, crazy. So, you, so, crazy. so it's you who made him famous, man. <laughs> He's yeah, famous totally. because yeah. of gave, you. Gave him, gave him his big break. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you said, I mean, a lot of things like that have happened to me. I don't know if it's like luck or right 
place at the right time. But like most of, you know, that I got on that tour because I was DJing at a shitty little like crappy bar in New York, like a total dive. And some guy was there and he was like, I'm a drummer. I like your DJing. My friend is like auditioning uh, DJs to be in this band. And so I went and I, he was inviting me. I took the audition. I won the job and I got to go on this huge tour. You know, so it was just like happenstance that serendipity that this guy was in the bar. He liked like the 10 minutes of my DJing that he heard. He invited me to audition. And then like, and the audition was like, I got along really well with the music director who was the drummer. And he was like, you know, Hey man, we got a jam. And so I started like playing like a Michael Jackson acapella and I put a beat behind it. He's like, Oh yeah. And he's drumming. And we're just like vibing. And he was like, you're cool. I want to travel with you. You know? And that's how it happened. It wasn't because like I necessarily had the superior skill. I don't know, like 50 DJs auditioned or something. I just got along with the dude, you know? And uh, so you're right. I mean, I think that if you're like generally open to opportunity, then it comes to you. And if you're generally kind and friendly to people that, you know, that will hopefully resonate. You know, it's funny. I get a lot, you know, you, you too, but like you get a lot of criticism when you're in the Twitter community. People think you're faking things or that it's all about money or this and that. I try to, I mean, there's nothing I can do to convince them, but I really am not. Like, <laughs> I really was raised to be a very nice person and to care about others. You know, that's how my parents were. They were hippies. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's just the kind of person I am, you know? Yeah, and see this, you know, Scott, you use the word luck, right? Some people would call that, you know, they would, well, quote unquote, blame luck for all these success, right? But the truth is, or, you know, they would just kind of like envy because you're, they, they tell you you're lucky, right? But the truth is, again, that first of all, you need to accept the opportunity that comes. And, you know, this luck is nothing with, with like without your actual proactivity and then, and again, acceptance for, for the opportunities. Yeah. You have to work hard to, to be in opportunities to, for luck to find you, I think. And then you have to work hard enough to capitalize on that lucky opportunity. I mean, I think that anyone certainly in music art world, they'll tell you like, I mean, you know, you can go on YouTube and see there's thousands of people who are more talented than the big artists that you see. Right. Yeah. There's all these people that can sing their asses off, that can play their asses off, they're good looking, whatever, but they haven't gotten that lucky break, right? So like it's the mo the most famous people are the ones who had the talent, also had the lucky opportunity, and then were like strong enough or or you know, lucky enough to really capitalize on that moment. And then it kind of has this snowball effect where it just gets bigger and bigger and better and better, and then it becomes sort of like an unstoppable machine, you know? And so, yeah, I, I'm very lucky and there's a lot of luck, but I can definitely say that like when those opportunities arose, I was not afraid to like go for it with everything that I had, you know, like I was not shy about it. I knew what I wanted and, and kind of uh, went after it. And I'm quite certain, you know, this is how you actually define a successful person, you know? Uh, it's, talent is nothing, again, if you are not proactive about pushing, you know, or kind of like, you know, just again, accepting what you get from the world, right? And uh, when you do, amazing things happen, right? That's, uh, that's, that's, that's super crazy. But, you know, this, let's say, lack, uh, this lack takes me to, uh, to the next topic because we could call that you were lucky to learn your way through well, through the past decades of on the investment markets, right? Uh, for, mm -hmm. for the legacy markets, as far as I know, you actually, you know, experienced 
um, well, 2008 crisis by, by all the yeah. means in the investment, uh, let's say, meaning of that. And um, what, would you, what would you kind of like, you know, describe this 2008 uh, period for you? What, what kind of like, you know, could have, could have been done better on your end? What did you work on? And how do you compare that to 2020? Right. So it's interesting. So I was in debt until 2006 when I booked that tour and I used the money from that tour to like to pay off my credit cards. I had an old landlord that I owed money to and I like paid everybody off and I had a little extra money for the first time. Um, in fact, in like 2001, I had bought a mutual fund with like my graduation money for $5,000, like all the money I had in the world. And I was like, I'm going to save this forever. And I literally had to like cash it out to pay rent and it was worth like 3,200 bucks. So that was my first experience in like totally getting trashed in the market, you know? Um, and then like I had a little money after 2006 to put into the markets, nothing crazy. And I watched it all completely, you know, evaporate um, like everyone else. I generally held through it. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have money to really buy the huge dips or anything, but I held through it. And then uh, in 2012, I went all in on like an investment tip that someone had given me on a certain stock or pharmaceuticals. And I literally wrote it to zero like delisted from the stock exchange, nothing. And that, I mean, shut me out. So we could talk about my DJ career and music, whatever, say that I had lucky moments. I would argue that actually like my luck took me certain so far, but I actually had some terrible experiences in music that where I could have gotten much luckier. But markets, I paid my dues like many times over. I mean, I, got, I went broke. I got hurt. I experienced every downside. So I don't think that there was any luck for me in markets. I think that I really learned hard lessons. I mean, you can say that I was lucky, like definitely being in crypto in early 2017, late 2016. Awesome. Yeah, that was great timing. But then if you're there in 2016, you say you were lucky if you were there in 2014. And if you were there in 2014, you say you were lucky if you were there in 2010, right? And the reality is those people weren't lucky. They had balls of steel, right? If you still have your crypto from 2010 and 2020, that is not luck, right? Yeah. And you had conviction in something that was nascent and completely like a risky foreign concept. And you held to that conviction for this long. You were not just lucky, you know? And I think that that's a, I think it touches on the fact that in general, what you're saying about like calling someone lucky, unless has just literally won the lottery or something is just, it's like a, it's a lazy description. It's a cop out. You know what I mean? It's just like you're, you're, it's a, it's a personal way for you to, somewhat minimize their accomplishments. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of people, myself included, when I was younger, like I was definitely a hater, you know, like I went through my phases where this DJ sucks and he shouldn't be bigger than me. He didn't even make his own music. Like I went through that whole like trolley phase because I wanted to be as big as they were. It was jealousy. Right. So like I've experienced it. I know how that feels. And so like, I know when it's like fired at us or when you see it in the markets and stuff, I know what it is. And I think that most people will probably mature through it you know, and, and realize, and it's just the earlier that you like get past that and become just a generally more positive person and that you start to like respect people's accomplishments as opposed to minimize them. That's when all the good things start happening to you as well. Yeah. I think, you know, there is a lot of, yeah. No, you were saying, I forgot you were asking me about 2008 versus now. Very similar. You know, I think that, uh, I think that, um, it was more painful then, obviously, because it bounced back so much harder this time. Like, 
it was like 2010 and you were still like, oh, what the fuck is happening here? Like, is this ever going to come back? You know, um, this was more painful, like in March than the, any point in 2008. But I mean, the markets came back so hard and the, what the, you know, the just literally like criminal activity they're pulling to prop the market at this point is comical. So you, you almost believe <laughs> it. You almost want to watch Dave Porter and be like, yeah, stocks really do never go down, you know, because they're making mm-hmm. sure that that's the case. But yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I would say it's comparable, but uh, obviously that the big recovery this time was a lot more dramatic and, and painless. Unless you sold yeah. the bottom. <laughs> which, which was actually quite easy to do if you think about it, right? Oh, yeah. Because it was, it was smashing through the levels. It was smashing hedge through funds the did supports. it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, think, I think they said that 12% of hedge funds were profitable in both April and May. And those were arguably the most bullish two months in the history of the market if you look back at it, right? Yeah. So, that's very true. It wasn't just, wasn't just your average person that was getting destroyed, right? It was the big money, oh, yeah. the guys who were supposed to be smart and have the inside information, they were getting destroyed. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like crazy. It's kind of crazy because, um, you know, before we, before we put on, you know, put up, you know, this, this perhaps S&P 500 chart on your end, if you don't mind, um, yeah, let me, I'm, let me really, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your overall thoughts, you know, about, well, again, the industry crossing new all-time highs, right? While at the same time, you know, struggling so hard with the unemployment, but at the same time, struggling so hard with slowdown, economic slowdown, the GDP decrease, and overall inflation that is actually you know, just going crazy. Uh, how, how would you, let's say, what would you say about, about this I think it's, situation? I think it's, dis- I think it's disgusting. You know, listen, like I have not pulled my money out of the market, so I don't think it's that disgusting, I guess, right? I mean, I've never strayed from my investing strategy, which is just dollar cost averaging into the stock market indefinitely because over time, stocks always go up, Um, you know, but uh, I have disproportionately weighted my overall portfolio to crypto in the past six months, which was something that I was never comfortable with before. And that's not a financial decision. It's a fuck the system decision. You know, um, uh, you know, 50% of Americans have any exposure to the stock market, roughly. And half of those people have like less than a few hundred dollars in the stock market, or they have like a zombie 401k or IRA that they bought some mutual fund and forgot about it, that they're not actively managing. So like everything else that happens in this country and in this world, the rise of the stock market and quantitative easing and money printing disproportionately helps rich people and leaves everybody else behind, right? If you don't have a job, you don't care if like your $10 worth of stock that you own is now worth $13, you know? And I think that that's like a very important distinction because I think that people are still hurting. I didn't see that. I mean, the jobs report will come out tomorrow. But in the United States, still a million people lost, you know, filed for unemployment last week. A million people. That would have been a record, you know, six months ago. And now it's like, oh, we did great. We only lost a million (laughs) jobs this week, in a week. So people are hurting. The economy is in shambles, like you said. We're seeing GDP contraction across the world. It's all being propped up by monetary policy and by central banks. And it's a house of cards, you know. And listen, it may never fail. They, I mean, it will eventually, but we may not see it fail anytime soon. Like the sort of Bitcoin maximalist 
you know, theory that the dollar is going to, I don't think that's going to happen necessarily. But I do think that like, you're seeing a grand awakening among people that like, this is a really broken system. And I think your average person never thought about money. They never thought about like how fiscal policy affected their life. But now I think if you're an average person and you see the price of the stock market and then you see your bank account drawing down to almost zero and you're getting no help, you, you have to be able to see it, right? So I think honestly, man, I look at the stock market and I think, I think it's disgusting. Like I have trouble, I have trouble even trading it. By the way, could you, could you, could you pull up this SP, S&P 500 chart for example? Yeah, I, I have a spy chart. I guess that's uh, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, whatever. But uh, there's one line on my chart, the all time high. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, what I find most interesting about this chart, obviously, is like anytime you look at something like this, you, you know, you want to see volume confirming a trend. <laughs> so you can see we had this huge spike in selling volume and then just decreasing volume this entire time up, right? Which is why everyone's going uh, shorted here. Here's a level shorted here, you know, like uh, oh, it's price shorted here, you know. And there's even people who, you know, you see it down here and these lows right here were swept below, right? So, like, hey, let's throw a line on this chart, right? Well, this retest should have been a short, right? By any, if you're, if you're like a TA person and you see that level that strong, you get boom, boom, you're shorting it down to here. It mm, didn't happen. They say you never trade again against central banks. Right, you never trade against don't, central don't banks. Don't fade the Fed, right? Don't fade exactly. The Fed. So, and, and I think that that's true. But also, like looking at this shows you how ridiculous and somewhat useless charts are when you're charting like the stock market as a whole. Of course, there's you can see certain things about human behavior when you look at this, but it's very it's very difficult to like trade it. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, just as an example, I don't even know what these arrows are pointing at. This is so old. But um, I mean, is there a, this is back to oh, this is only back so, to so you you, you were this, but, you were placing these arrows back in two thousand. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly these I, I I believe that these were all points. Looking at it now, where uh, these like long wick dojis failed. <laughs> Just looking yeah, at it, yeah. like that should have been a reversal. That should have been a reversal. But so this only goes back to ninety four on trading view. But if you looked at this chart back to like you know the early nineteen hundreds, it looks exactly like this, right? Always up. Great depression, buying opportunity, always up, always up, always up. So if you want to talk about like trading stocks, you're always trading against the trend. If you're selling, you're shorting. That's true. Like if you zoom out, there's never been a time that there's never been a time that you shouldn't have bought stock if you had more than a 10 year time horizon. In fact, I don't think there's ever been a 10 year period, including the great depression or great recession where you didn't still get like a 7% return or something. So, you know, it's kind of like absurd to even, uh, try to, to short it. Now, listen, I shorted a bunch in here. I was right. I was right. I was right. Shorted again. Wrong. Stop shorting. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, one time fool me. Fine. Fool me twice. That's my fault. You know, but here you go. I mean, we're moving into all time high territory. It's completely flying on completely diminished volume. And now we're even seeing that the volume here is lower than the volume was even before any of this. So not only are we, like, you might expect a decrease because this selling was so strong, but to see like your average volume now, like to see it generally lower than the candles over here. I mean, nobody's trading this like they were, yeah. right? It's, it's, you can see this is not like people and even like my friends at hedge funds are like largely have been on the sidelines or were wrong in trying to short, you know, because it just doesn't make any sense. But it yeah, makes 100%. sense if they're gonna 
when they're buying corporate bonds and the Fed is actually buying stock, I guess it makes sense, right? They're not going to yeah, let it fail. I'm, I'm not quite before sure this election. Yeah, I'm not quite before sure this election. Did. Well, they buy corporate bonds, right? I mean, like if, if a company that has billions and billions of dollars in cash reserves can issue a bond and the government will still buy it, even though that company has cash, that is the most criminal and absurd thing in existence. I want people to understand that if you live in the United States, they might have sent you $1,200 check. But these companies, they gave billions of dollars when they literally didn't even need it. It is socialism. It is welfare. It's just yes, welfare it and socialism for the rich. So if you have a problem with socialism, but you're exposed to the stock market or you're a trader and you're, well, you need to check what really socialism is, right? Because yeah. socialism doesn't only apply to poor people right? Any free money that someone doesn't need. So, I mean, these guys are giving their friends money. It's, you know, these CEOs are getting their bonuses. Nothing is stopping this train for, for the, the wealthiest, the, the top 1%. It's cronyism. We do not have capitalism. And that's why I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin, crypto is a free market, right? People say it's manipulated. This is, that's not manipulated. This is manipulated. Yeah, every market is manipulated uh, to an extent. You know, just trading itself is nothing else but manipulation. And well, the manipulation comes with an actual, let's say, lack of you know enough liquidity, I guess, because you can truly manipulate market to again fool the people. Because you need to fool the people, because otherwise you're not having the liquidity to you know buy a big amount of the asset, right, or sell the. Right, and that and that's why charts work. That's why charts exactly. work because you see the same patterns of when those people decide that there's enough liquidity to make their move. I mean, that's why you see, you know, the long wick SFPs and you see these patterns forming. It's because it's just a visualization of that exact behavior. But, you know, the, the idea that the Bitcoin market is manipulated, it's true depending on your definition, but it bothers me because like, when you see what's happening in the stock market, that's manipulation, right? People like that's to true. scream manipulation in Bitcoin because it goes against them. It's the same thing. Like saying someone was lucky saying this, you lost money, so it was manipulated, right? I lost money and that's, so that must be a scam, right? right? So, so it's a scam, <laughs> but it's not. It's just that it's a small market. It's a market where somebody with disproportionate wealth can move the market, but that's not manipulation. That's literally the definition of a free market. If that person is dumping on you, someone is buying it, right? Sure. If that person is buying and price is shooting up, somebody is selling it, you know? So um, just because it goes against you or it moves fast or because the market is being moved by a few parties does not to me inherently mean manipulation. It just means that they're fortunate enough to be big players in the market. And you have the beautiful opportunity of trying to ride on their back as opposed to trying to fight against them. So you just need to be on sides and find what they're doing, which is very difficult, don't get me wrong, which often the problem is it's counterintuitive, right? Because they're using your emotion, they're using your natural feeling about what should happen against you, right? That's yeah. why, like, if you were looking at the SPY, right? Imagine if now this dropped like this, right? People do all-time high, longs are filling and shorts are, you know, shorts are like getting locked out, buying and then, Dump yeah. it. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, and that, that's kind of what you saw here, right? This should have been a short. They know that. Look at that buying volume where, where people were theoretically shorting. It's crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I'm just I'm just looking, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm just looking, you know, and kind of like uh, at this bird chart at this crash, right? That took what a couple of weeks to actually, you know, just finalize in a way with so 
insane gaps in the middle, right? They were like literally largest gaps you could you could literally spot on the market. Yeah. And it was on yeah. an institutional market. And I mean the legacy market itself. So it's it's unprecedented like even I guess in you know since the actually great great recession of the nineteen twenties. But um yeah, I mean, for this candle of, to close at two ninety seven, and then Monday it opens at two seventy five is crazy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, we also have touched upon well, crypto and Bitcoin. So why don't we pull up a Bitcoin chart that you're actually having on the top? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty curious myself, and uh, well, I'm guess I, I truly guess you know the listeners are going to be truly intrigued to know well your opinion on where we are heading for Bitcoin. Uh, in the long-term perspective. Let me see if I've got a right chart. All right, well, now I'm just switching over to the monthly because we want to talk long-term. There's no reason to be looking at four-hour charts, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, long-term, I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin and I don't need a chart to, to tell you that, right? I mean, the world is falling apart and I think Bitcoin is an answer to that, right? And I think that as the world moves more fully digital, I think more people are going to be acquainted with the idea of a wallet when, you know, central banks start using digital currencies. I just think there's a lot of reasons to be generally bullish on Bitcoin. And to be clear, when I got into Bitcoin, I was just in it for, for making dollars. You know, if you go back to my tweets, like probably from like even a year, two years ago, I'd always be like, yeah, I'm just trying to get, you know, I'm just trying to make money. I'm just trying to make money. But then, you know, like with everyone else, I think if you're here long enough, the light bulb kind of starts to flicker and then you realize that this really is important, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, I, you look at a month, a monthly chart here and you see this candle and you see this bullish engulfing candle. I mean, and you see this wick. I mean, we reversed. You know what I mean? There's, and obviously, you, you know, we, something, you know, doesn't matter where you draw it. We can draw it there. We can draw it here. You, you know, choose your poison. Maybe we draw it there because it's so pretty when you get the retest right here. But, the downtrend's broken, right? This 10,540 level, let's highlight it, you know, pink or something. This was a macro. This made a higher high on this bearish structure here. So, and then you look at the month and you pull these two levels, and literally this monthly candle retests that almost to the dollar, right? Comes back and then finds resistance slightly above this swing high, which is that liquidity that we're talking about. So I don't really care what happens from here. I'm not selling any <laughs> um, in, in my longer term stack. I mean, I go in and out all the time. I take profits as a trader and stuff. But as an investor, I mean, I, I would be very, very surprised if we didn't see, you know, certainly above uh, the 14,000s uh, by the end of this year. But like, and I don't like to make grand price predictions, but above... Um, you know, certainly above the all-time high in the coming months to year. Um, and then from there, I think it goes a lot higher. I, was, I had a really interesting conversation recently. You guys, you might know Travis Kling uh, from Twitter. He's a hedge fund guy. And yeah. something he's uh, sort of uh, really, I hadn't thought about that he and I were talking about. And he said, listen, like, he deals with institutions and money. And he obviously, like everyone else, is like, real money is here now, right? This isn't just like retail raising the market like 2017. But he said, what people don't realize is that like, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap, right? I mean, Apple is six times, seven times bigger than all of crypto, whatever it is at this point, you know, five times, whatever. And uh, he's like, big, big money cannot buy crypto right now. 
it's too small. They want to buy it, but it literally needs to be trillions in market cap for them to even be exposed to it because it's not big enough for them to be able to enter and exit positions. So he's like, we're going to 30, 40,000. And when we get there, that's when the big money starts buying and takes this to 100,000. And he was like, so con- had so much conviction about it. He was like, I talked to these people and they're like, I want to buy Bitcoin. I'm just not doing it till it's a $30,000 asset. Yeah. I've but, heard it so many times to be frank. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's just, but like even an experienced trader, like the, the notion that like you want to buy at a more expensive price is always like, seems so uh, counterintuitive and contradictory, but that is the case, you know, as traders, obviously we'll be like, when it breaks this level, that'll be my confirmation. But like we're at $11,479 as we're recording this. And we're talking about buying at 30 or 40,000, right? So it's a, yeah. you know, it's got to do a three or four X before they even care. Yeah, um, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, I've, I've heard so many times and I've seen so many times people, you know, in my friends or in my comments or anywhere else that they would say, no, this, you're wrong. This chart is so bearish. I'm bearish. I'm bearish until we break 20 K. Right. <laughs> and again, if you're an institutional investor and you're lacking the liquidity pool itself, I can truly understand that. And well, I think it just surprises me just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. I'm not so surprised with what you said about this institutional, let's say, industry that truly wants to get in Bitcoin, but is lacking the liquidity, right? Which is actually true because if you think about it, there's not really, uh, well, not many institutional places, you know, for um, yeah, like the exchanges, right? Not easy, not easy to buy $10 billion in Bitcoin and know that you exactly. could sell it if you had to. That's the problem. Exactly. It's like, that, that, I mean, we saw what happened in March when people wanted to get out of it, right? When bonds were crashing and people needed money, they went to Bitcoin because they could get liquidity, but that took price from like 9000 to 3600 or something just because people needed to sell. So they can't uh, mess with something that, that behaves like that when, uh, when it's risk off. Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing, Scott. Um, I have well recently, especially since since this since this March you know incident, uh, this this black swan crash, um, I noticed one thing that is completely different in Bitcoin history than you know than when compared to what it used to be before the crash, and this is extreme similarity between uh, precious metals and bitcoins, and I truly mean in gold, silver, and bitcoin, like such a trio, right? And all, all that you can see in the charts is whenever, let's say, there is some more violent reaction on the market, you know, on the gold or in silver, you see practically the same reaction on Bitcoin. And, you know, although, you know, it may be, it may be even crashing again, it may dump, you know, 1K, 1K 2K, but paradoxically, paradoxically, to me, it's more bullish than it's ever been because it truly means that, again, if such a big move happens on Bitcoin and it happens on gold and silver, it means that exactly the same money and the same capital is sitting in all the markets. So again, this is just a confirmation that we are at the stage already that big money is in right. Bitcoin. And it's a, it's a signal of maturity if the digital gold narrative actually has 100%. evidence behind it. Because until five months, even in March, when it dumped, people were like, ah, digital gold, stupidest thing. It's 3,000, you're idiots, right? And now all of a sudden, everybody's like digital gold because it went back up. First of all, narratives change faster than like underwear. So it's hard to keep up <laughs> with what any of us, myself included, think at any given moment because we're all you know, staring at this thing all day and trying to figure out what the hell is happening at any given moment. But I agree with you. But to me, it's less about... Um, 
gold and silver strength or weakness than it is about dollar strength and weakness. And, um, you know, like the, people have been screaming about the stock market correlation and clearly they moved uh, in similar manners at certain times here. But like, you know, to me, correlation, it's, the, the evidence is not there when you zoom out any beyond the last few months. And so, yes, when things crash, they might crash together. But I think that that's where it stops. But inverse correlation to the, I mean, I can literally, let me hear one second, I'll pull up a chart. Go ahead. It's, it's hilarious. I mean, it's really funny to me this point um you know it doesn't take rocket science to uh see this right so here's bitcoin and, and the dollar right this is bitcoin and blue i mean <laughs> look at this peak and valley peak and valley peak and valley peak and valley and then crossing it i mean like i said it's right there it's, it's in front of you so when the dollar is weak people buy bitcoin when the dollar is raging people sell these things and that is similar behavior to stocks uh, to, to gold and silver and somewhat to stocks. I mean, the stock market generally moves uh, somewhat inversely to the dollar as well. So, yeah, I think eyes on the dollar if you want to see where it's going. But, like, keep in mind that the government wants a weak dollar, not a strong dollar. And they seem to get what they want if you've been yeah, watching That's interesting. That's that. interesting. That's really interesting if you think about it, right? I, I have seen, you know, some, some research, some reports on, uh, well, the economic data, on uh, you know the around uh, twenty seven to thirty percent increase over the M two money aggregate supply, the monetary supply over just one year since two thousand nineteen, they increased by twenty seven to thirty percent this entire money supply. Like, how crazy is that? Like, what what does it do to dollars power to the dollars buying power? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, they want a weaker dollar. Um... Uh, like you said, pumps the stock market. That's what people see. That's how you win elections. That's how, you know, a lot of people own our dollars. A lot of people want our dollars. They can pump as many as they want. It doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, just, and and, and the, the inflation thing is interesting because, you know, printing money is a meme, right? There's not like there's some uh, printing press that's literally like firing off 24-7 so that we can go get more dollars. It's all about available capital to, to banks to lend. Right. So there's only inflation if the banks have someone to lend to and people have like a major appetite for, for loans. And so even though they're printing money, which means making basically endless funds available to banks to loan, I don't think that people right now are taking those loans to any great degree. So I don't really think, I think the money printing is a bit of a meme in practice. Um, you know, what people view as I think that the Fed is definitely buying bonds and buying stock, corporate bonds and those things. And that's where we're really seeing it with the quantitative easing. Um, but, you know, I don't think we're seeing this huge spike in loans. I mean, people are taking cheap mortgages when they can, you know, so it's not hurting the real estate market. But Smells um, like 2008. <laughs> I, I'm surprised that housing prices have not crashed. And I was very early to say that they would. And I guess I can say for now that I was wrong, which is which is fine. But like... Yeah, I mean, you can get a 30-year mortgage in the United States for under 2% now. And that was, you know, 4% just a year or two ago. And when I was a kid, my savings account, my bank account in the 80s got like 12 or 14% interest or something. But my parents' mortgage was like 14 or 15%. You know, yeah. it's like the... <laughs> so we had this like sort of hyper high uh, interest rates crazy and now you like now you put your money that's a, i mean such another strong argument for bitcoin I, I i made this comment i was on a live stream yesterday and it just kind of came out 
But I realized in my mind, at least the way I think about it now, is that like your dollars are for spending and your Bitcoin is like your savings account now. Yeah. Because you can't save dollars anymore. Like you can, you, you might need to use them and you can't, but like they're not doing anything for you. You know, like with the, the days they're, of like, they're not just, doing anything else than just losing value. <laughs> right. The, 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 the days of like, I'm just going to like hoard my dollars in the bank account and make, you know, and, and it'll, my wealth will compound. You get nothing. You don't even get 1% in a savings account anymore. So you can't do that. That's why I feel terrible for millennials. You know, like they're, they inherited this broken monetary system where like you have to take tremendous risk just to do what like baby boomers did by leaving their money in a bank, you know? It's a really, it's really crazy. So like, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is a better chance for you to like compound gains um, long-term as a savings, just as a simple savings account, you know, versus, versus dollars. So it's hard to want to spend, I, I spend crypto. Like, I feel like I need to be a part of the movement. I use my crypto credit cards and like, I, I do it, you know, but it, it hurts a little bit because you're like, I'd almost rather be spending the dollars and saving the crypto, you know? hundred percent. And, uh, well, Scott, you've been so generous with your experience, with your time, with your, all of your knowledge. And before I let you go, um, I truly want to touch upon one last thing, you know, I'm so curious and I'm quite sure, you know, a lot of viewers are going to be also intrigued even more by, uh, what ventures projects you're working on right now and what are your plans go with? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. So I, you know, it's everything for me, it kind of just happens as it, as opportunity presents, you know, I don't have a grand master plan at all. I, I think I really have slowed down and I'm just enjoying the ride to, to some degree. So like, you know, my Twitter account grew for whatever reason that was not contrived or planned, you know, it just like it happened. And then, I started to realize like it wasn't enough for me. Like, you know, like you, so I, you were I, just lucky. <laughs> so well, you were just you know, lucky, you say. It's super lucky. So <laughs> it's funny because I had like 40,000 followers in music, you know, and I had the blue check awesome. for music, which helps, of course. But I pissed all them off. I just stopped talking about music and started talking about crypto and I lost like half my followers. It went down to like 20 and then, you know, it kind of built up from there. But I, it, I was when, lucky, when was honestly, it? to that degree. Probably in 2018, 2009, you know, 2018 oh, is when I really dropped really? and then it started to grow again. But so I, and you know, I felt like I had so much to say, like, I didn't know if anyone wanted to listen. I just want to like create, you know, to, to express myself. So I started a free newsletter in November, just like, and I literally was like, I just want to be able to like, instead of posting Twitter threads, I just want to write this shit down somewhere, you know? That started to become a lot of work. <laughs> so yeah. I kept the free version and I started, you know, a $15 a month. I was like, that's the cheapest I could do to justify like my time. And that became almost like a full-time job and obsession for me. So I was like putting it out two, three times a week. And I still do that. I do it all myself. You know what I mean? It's just, and I love doing it. I like absolutely love it. It keeps my pulse on the market. It keeps me looking at charts. It forces it. It, it almost like keeps me accountable. You know, like to, because if I'm answering to other people, even if you're just giving me $15, like I want to make sure that like I'm giving you good information and whatever. So I think it's as much a service to myself as it is to them. And then maybe in January, like I got a email from Jason at Blockworks and he was like, you should do a podcast, man. I was like, I don't want to do a podcast. I've never done a podcast. I don't know like how to do a podcast. And he was like, trust me, we'll do everything. It's like, all you got to do is show up. He's like, you find people you want to talk to. 
And so then I started doing that. And I felt like I was pretty crappy at it. You know, like I was preparing all these questions. I felt like I was sort of like a robot. You know, now I've gotten to the point where I don't even like do much prep. I just really read about the person and I show up and have a conversation. And then I came to realize like sponsors were willing to pay for this thing, you know, making money. And I get to call anyone I want and like learn from them for an hour. You know, like the most brilliant people who would have probably never talked to me before. I can like hit them up or have someone I know, like try to like make an introduction or something and they'll talk to me. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's like getting paid to go to college from the best people in each field. You know, so it's like you get to like have this mentor for an hour. So I love doing that. Right. So, and then, and then the Twitter hack happened, you know, a couple months ago and I got, you know, I got hacked and removed from Twitter only for days, but it was terrifying for me, like to, to lose my voice, like to, to the realizing the sort of like counterparty risk I was taking by having all of my audience in one place. So I was like, I'm launching a website just so like people can find me and have everything in one place. So I did that. And now I manage the website. It's way too much work. So, you know, and at that point, I got way out over my skis. I've admitted this recently on Twitter. And I think like the newsletter content, it suffered a little bit or not suffered. I just think I became kind of like, like I was selling more than I was providing, which was never my intention. Like I started doing a weekly Sunday issue and that was just like, look what I did this week. And then I was kind of like, nobody gives a shit what I did this week. Like (laughs) who cares? Who am I? Right. And so I pulled back a lot actually recently and I'm trying to re kind of focus on those core competencies, the things I think that resonated with people. And, uh, I mean, I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake, I'm the first to like leave my terrible tweet up and not delete it, you know, and just take the beating and, and whatever. But, um, you know, so right now I'm really focused on just continuing to put out a great newsletter and continuing to, you know, do the podcast. And as you know, like you get to a certain point uh, where all these companies want to like want a piece of you to some degree, you know, and I'm not really comfortable like just doing that, but because of the podcast and having sponsors, I end up working with the sponsors, you know? And so I, in that capacity, like long before, not even in that capacity, like I became an advisor to a project called Centivate, which you might be uh, familiar with, but that was before I was even like really, I probably had 30,000, 40,000 Twitter followers then. Um, You know, and I've had the opportunity to like, just like with the podcast, I like, you know how it is. Now I can like call the CEOs of these companies and ask them what's up. Like you're in a telegram chat. Like you just find yourself in these situations where you're connecting with all the people. Like I'm trading this coin. I don't even know what it is, but now I'm meeting the CEO and we're having a conversation. I invite him on the podcast. He gets me super excited. Like I want to do something with them, you know? And it's just like this endless sort of thing where it's like creative cooperation. And so like, I'm definitely looking for, you know, it's just like building. Advisory. Yeah, it's just building. Like, and I, so like, I've definitely embraced the opportunity to like use my brain um, to help advise people, whether they're strangers, whether I'm compensated, whether I'm not. It's always transparent if I am. You know what I mean? You guys have yellow block. You know what I mean? Like, you know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, of course. you have a pulse of the market, and people want to understand the market, so they come to you to help them create the content that you know that delivers their best face forward to the market. And I think. That's not something I can do. Like, I'm not a good marketer in that way, you know? But so we all have, you know, all these kind of like side things. And I just think I, it's I all would argue, I would argue you're not a good marketer. Scott. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I think I, you're like, a great like, marketer. It's just, I don't, I, I don't know. I just think like, 
Maybe, but, um, <laughs> there you go, I, but, but people, but people don't approach me to like market their stuff. You know, they, that they, they, they're not like make me a cool video that, you know, that's just not my core competency, uh -huh. but you, I mean, I'm speaking, you know, I'm preaching to the choir right now. You know what I'm talking right. about? It's just like you, you really, this is a very, very, very tight knit community. And I think you, when you get to a certain level on Twitter, especially if you're doxxed, I think, because you're a real person, you know, that they can see and talk to and um, can't hide, you know, um, it gives you a lot of opportunities. And, and so I'm really excited to hopefully build with more of these projects that I'm passionate about in the future. And like, it's funny because people often think that I'm getting, you, you get it too, you get accused of being a shill for like literally anything positive I post, somebody is in the comments that you got paid yeah. for that. It's like, I'm not even allowed to be passionate about stuff anymore. Yeah. Like if I shared my friend's music when I was a DJ, nobody would be like, your friend paid you. But now if like a friend of mine is like, Hey, can you tweet this for me? And it's like, I'm like, yeah, yeah this is awesome. And I tweet it. They're like, how much do you get paid for that? I'm like, my Twitter is not, uh, you know, we're not like, I'm not, it's not for sale. Like I'm just sharing things I'm passionate about. But if I put a link in anything, somebody thinks that I got paid, you know? Um, so it's a delicate balancing act. Um, to to be you know organic and, and true and and not piss off the community in one way or another. But I think my real goal is just keep building what I'm doing, and uh, touching on the very beginning of this conversation, like when the luck and opportunity happens to to be open to it and ready to capitalize on it. Yeah, I think these are great words, Scott. And uh, just to kind of like wrap it up, um, I think you know people that are interacting with you or me, you know, or, or anybody else on the, on the Twitter, let's call influencers for to an extent with this large following. Um, you would see, I'm quite sure again, just as you said, people who, there's a two, two groups of people, those who build and those who want to destroy. Right. And just, I think this summarizes perfectly that, you know, it all corresponds and back comes back to, to this lack stuff. Right. When you build, when you focus on creating and giving back your energy to the people, right? It just comes around multiplied by, by many, many times. And yep. uh, that's what I think just makes you a great person that you are. I appreciate that, man. I really do. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of, like, I've met the most brilliant and interesting people in this space that I've ever met in my life in the last like year or two. I mean, I think it's just going to absolutely skyrocket. It's hard not to be bullish on crypto when you like actually talk to the people that are, you know, building things like you said. Yeah. And listen, I, and I said, even, you know, before that those people that are trying to destroy the trolls, the whatever, like the community members who are really like, I think that I think most of those people mature and will change. And, it, you know, I don't think that that's like there's anything inherently wrong with them. And I think at the end of the day, when they all realize, like, you can, like, tear people like you and myself down. We get it. We know that we're targets. But at the end of the day, like, everything I'm doing is to make myself. I'm not going to say it's all altruistic. And everyone else in this community, make them money and make them happy. Even the worst troll, the meanest person to me in the world, I wake up every day and I'm like, how can I bring crypto mainstream and make us all yeah. fucking rich? You know? So like you can do whatever you want to try to get in my way of that. But really, like I do believe in it and really do want that to happen. And I want it to happen for even the people who are like the coolest and meanest to me. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. uh, I think then they'll be happy. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I think, you know, just makes people, you know, fall in love with with what you are doing. And 
this all just, you know, combined of what is it like almost 120K followers, right? It's, it's such an amazing platform. And well, all I can say is, you know, just, just take an example of me again, just, uh, just getting super close to 100K followers. I wake up like every tomorrow. day. <laughs> uh, By the time well, this comes out, sure. you'll be 100K. I, can, I feel like. uh, Not sure. Not sure. Uh, I, I mean, I hope. But the truth is, again, I wake up every single day and I just think, okay, what can I do? To, to take a use of my responsibility because the truth is that your big following is a big responsibility, right? Yeah. You may, many, many would not think about it, but when you have the audience and the larger the audience is, the more goodness you can spread at one point, at one time, right? So uh, I just, you know, focus and do my best also on building. So I, I truly think, you know, deep inside, we are kind of like soulmate builders, right? For, for I, the industry. I, I agree, man. We, 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 uh, we connected very quickly when we obviously met in person. Yeah. We've remained friends. And so, yeah, I, I think true. that you have that, that same spirit, you know, and music. People, I, I don't know if everybody here knows how good you are at like playing the guitar and singing. Oh, but, uh, they <laughs> don't break it, man. <laughs> no, no way. Uh, no you're way. rocking at the piano in the uh, Mike Tyson mansion when we were there for the uh, card game. So. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, man, I, I agree with you, though. I think, you know, at the end of the day, like, uh, it's all about maintaining that po- positivity and about really just trying to, you know, press forward. Like, I don't know how I just really like, it sounds like a meme or a cliche. I just, I hate the feeling of going backwards. It drives me nuts. So every day yeah. I wake up and I'm like, I just want to do one more thing, you know. 100%. And I can tell you're the same way because I see how much content you put out and what you guys are doing. I appreciate your all your kind words. And well, guys, to all the viewers, there is no way I let you out of this podcast without giving this amazing guest, Scott Melker, a follow on Twitter. You'll find it, Scott, on at Scott Melker. Just simply like that. Go make sure you put on this uh, Thank you. follow button and you're not going to regret it. And um, one final thing to leave our listeners with. We have this like a custom to make sure the guest, the VIP guest has, you know, just the opportunity to leave our listeners with the final word, with the final suggestion that you want to, well, just say. That, that's very, very easy for me, actually. And that is don't be a degenerate and trade it all away before it's actually worth something. You know, I've always said that no matter how good I got at trading, I would only trade with a small part of my capital. And I've never strayed from that. I'm an investor right? I want to buy stuff that I think is going to be worth more and hold it for a really, really long time. That's how I've approached it for years. And I've made more money, honestly, probably investing than trading. So I can only say that like, if you do feel like if you love Bitcoin and you really believe in it, then why would you trade it all away before it really reaches its potential? So just take 10 or 15%, trade with that, put the rest away in cold storage. Don't think about it. And really just let it, let it grow. And if you lose that 15%, stop. Just don't do it, right? You, you don't have to be a trader. Most people suck at it. I was, a, I was a pretty bad poker player. I lost a lot of money doing it. Eventually, I was like, this sucks. It's not fun anymore. I'm not going to play that much poker. I've lost money. You know, and just you don't need to trade just because everybody says it's great. And you definitely should not be trading with more than a small percentage of your capital. It's going to be worth more. Don't lose it now. I think these are great words, Scott. These are great words. Um, yeah, I truly appreciate your time. I truly appreciate you coming over to today's Nest Show podcast. 
And I'm truly inspired by you. I'm quite sure many people, many, many people are even more inspired by what you do, by how amazing person you are. And I wish you just keep being yourself. You're your best. You're you're a good man, Burp. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I appreciate guys all your coming to today's podcast as well. Uh, Our today's guest was Scott Melker. Again, make sure to follow him on Twitter. And that's the way finish. Today, the next show is out. Bixi is an easy-to-use cryptocurrency exchange. Get verified in minutes. Buy and sell popular cryptocurrencies on a safe, compliant, insured U.S. exchange. Enjoy everything you need in one place. A two-way ramp for major currencies, credit and debit card support, an industry-leading API, responsive customer support, and a five-star mobile app. Love your primary cryptocurrency exchange? If not, make the switch to Beeksy today. Visit Beeksy by clicking the link in the description. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining this episode of The Nest Show. Again, we want to thank our sponsors at PrimeXBT for their support of the show and for their support of our listeners. Once again, after signing up to trade at theburbnest.com slash PrimeXBT, be sure to follow up on the announcement channel of our Discord and learn how to capitalize on their generous trading bonus offer that they've exclusively made available to our community. If you've appreciated the depth and breadth of what you've heard with us today, subscribe to our podcast and find our landing page at theburbnest.com. We have a vibrant Discord community which acts as our central hub of operations, and we welcome you to join us at theburbnest.com discord. We also offer an extensive free bulletin on emerging crypto market trends, exclusive undervalued gem reports, and in-depth expert technical and fundamental analysis at theburbnest.com bulletin. We always appreciate engagement from our community, which of course means liking the video and subscribing to our page, where we insist on bringing you the highest quality content available. Also, we're happy to incorporate tips and topics from our listeners and encourage you to email us at thenestshow at theburbnest.com. This podcast is brought to you by The Burb Nest. Thank you and trade on.